there's a certain thrill that you get from doing research and finding out some sort of relationship uh, or some sort of phenomenon in the world that very few other people know about. I think it's really important to figure out what you're really interested in doing and what, what, not just what you're good at, but what you love doing as long, you know, if you can, if you can afford to do that. back to another episode of the No Easy Answers podcast, where we interview and talk to experts from a variety of different uh, fields to learn about various professions and potential career paths as we begin our journeys as incoming freshmen uh, in choosing and pursuing our own. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Ross Guerin, who is a managing director at Point72 Asset Management and the head of Cuba Systematic Strategies, the firm's quant business. He was also the co-founder of Taiki Capital, a quantitative hedge fund started in 2002. Uh, don't worry, we will be defining and discussing some of these more technical terms later on. I believe Mr. Guerin also attended some college called Harvard, but more importantly, Mr. Guerin is an alumni of Hunter College High School and the elementary school, which Adam and I recently graduated from. Uh, also, yeah, Adam is here. Uh, Adam has a pretty solid background in finance and entrepreneurship, so I wanted to bring him along for today. Uh, would you like to quickly introduce yourself, Adam? How's it going? Uh, my name is Adam Rudd. I, uh, I'm from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I, uh, like Eric said, went to Hunter College High School, and uh, next year I'm going to be going to Emory University. Uh, yeah, so once again, thank you so much for coming out today, Mr. Guerin. Uh, Adam and I are just going to be asking you a few questions regarding your work in finance, why you got into the fields, and what you do for your role in particular, uh, your experience with starting a business, and general advice you have for us and kids our age. Um, so why don't you start off by giving the listeners and us a little bit of background regarding the field that you work in. So what exactly is it that you do for a living in general terms, and maybe give us a taste of what a typical day looks like for you? Sure. Um, and one thing I should add is that actually, uh, about a year ago, I actually switched jobs and now I uh, run the quantitative strategies group at Millennium Partners, which is uh, another large hedge fund. But um, just to tell you a little bit about what I do, so I work for a, a hedge fund or an asset manager and have been doing that for a long time. Um, so we are uh, in the business of uh, investing, um, investing funds on behalf of uh, institutions and individual investors. Um, and uh, my particular focus has been doing that systematically. And so what that means is uh, the type of uh, investing that we do is guided by uh, quantitative methodologies or quantitative, te quantitative techniques. So what we try to do is come up with uh, rules-based or process-driven approaches to uh, investing um, in all sorts of different financial instruments. Um, so from that perspective, um, a lot of what we do, a lot of what I do on a daily basis, a lot of what my colleagues do is very similar to scientific research or social science research. So in other words, we are uh, investigating phenomenon in the world um, with, the, I, with the aim of trying to uh, make forecasts about the future. But instead of uh, investigating um, uh, more traditional social science uh, uh, questions, we're trying to find relationships that are expressed in financial markets. And effectively what we're trying to do is look at information that can be collected about the world that's uh, publicly available, process it, 
and try and make some forecasts about what stocks or bonds or other financial instruments will do in the future. Um, so most days are spent, uh, or large parts of our days are spent uh, trying to figure out um, what kind of data we can is available and how we might use that data to make better forecasts uh, about the future. And then when we have some confidence that those forecasts might be reasonable, how could we can incorporate them into a, uh, into a trading strategy so that we can buy and sell securities um, or other financial instruments in order to uh, make money on behalf of our investors. So that's a, that's a real nutshell explanation of it. I'm happy to go into more detail about um, the day-to-day -day work or give you examples if you'd like. I, I would like to quickly ask, you, you were talking about how when you, when you start to recognize trends, you start, you try to trade off of those trends or make, make decisions based, based off of them. Uh, how do you, how do you conclude that a trend is occurring? Um, or that like, like, how, how do you make sure that you're, that the decisions you make and the trades you make are, um, are going to be correct and are going to be profitable? Um, yeah. So, uh, so a couple of things, first of all, um, it's not just trends. So trends sort of has a, has an, and, and I only mention this because the term trend has some implication of autocorrelation or the fact that something which has happened recently is going to continue to happen. And sometimes actually what we're finding out is, uh, that what's happened in, that that what is likely to happen in the future is the exact opposite of what's recently happened um, or in fact a lot of a lot of a lot of the world of uh, investing is uh, is like is like a lot of uh, uh, social science phenomena or or um, or physical uh, natural phenomena which is that things tend to revert to the mean rather than just trending but nonetheless um, just I, it's a terrific question that you ask um, so we live in a world that is guided by natural laws, but most human interactions and certainly um, most human generated systems and certainly most economic systems um, only have probabilistic outcomes, um, just like the natural world. Um, and unlike the natural world, those are materially non-stationary. So I guess what I'm really saying there is, um, we can never be totally sure that what we're uh, forecasting is actually going to come true, um, but we can do a, uh, a reasonable job of estimating uh, from a large population um, that uh, something might be the case in the future. And I, I realize I'm speaking at a very abstract level, so still let me try and be uh, maybe a little more concrete. Um, you know, we might investigate we might wish to make some prediction about say uh, which uh, stock is gonna go up and which stock is gonna go down. And we might find out that in the past, um, if you were able to uh, you know, buy stocks on sunny days uh, and sell them on rainy days, you would have done well because uh, people were more pessimistic on rainy days. Um, and by the way, that doesn't exactly work. Um, but, but, it's a, but it's an idea. Um, and we could go and do a, uh, an experiment, uh, a series of experiments and look, look uh, historically to see if this was the case. And if it was the case, um, we, uh, we would then um, try and do this in real life. Now, of course, 
if all we had was one sunny day to observe in in real life and we bought on that day we might be wrong because we're not saying this happens every time there's a sunny day and every time there's a rainy day but uh disproportionately when there are sunny days and rainy days this happens and so if we could bet enough time, make a bet enough times and observe enough days we know that some small percentage of the time uh greater than 50 percent uh of sunny days things would go up and some small percentage of the time greater than less than 50 percent um uh on rainy days uh things would not go up and so we would express that that uh that forecast over a very, very large number of uh, observations. And in practice, um, when people in this industry are engaged in trading activities, the number one uh, most important thing is to ensure that you have a very, very large population of uh, potential trades that you can do because your likely forecastable edge is probably very, very small. Um, in this way, uh, you know, we can't really, you know, be sure that a trend is going to continue or for that matter, be sure that a trend is going to reverse, but we can take a, uh, we can, we can use some data, observe some phenomena, and then take a very, very large number of bets and be right, you know, enough of the time that we can, uh, we can, uh, be successful. Um, you mentioned that your uh, career and the way you make predictions is based on something called quantitative investing. So I was wondering, uh, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of quantitative investing versus uh, discretionary investing, which, uh, to my knowledge, is the more traditional form of investing? And can you define the two for us, um, Andrew? Sure. Why have you, uh, in particular, chosen to go into quantitative quantitative investing? Um, so. So you're absolutely right that most people in the world are engaged in who are engaged in trading and financial markets or engaged in investing are um, are engaged in uh, discretionary uh, investing. And um, I think if you are only going to make a very small number of bets or if you're going to make a bets that are over over a very long time horizon, you really don't have a choice other than to invest in a discretionary way. So if you're buying a stock and holding it for 10 years, you better have a pretty good, strong view of the company, uh, what it does, the management, the industry that it's in, all that sort of stuff, because you're gonna be holding it for 10 years. Um, and you're only gonna make a limited number of bets like that in your lifetime. So if if you have some sort of quantitative edge that makes you, uh, you know, slightly better than average, uh, it's not clear that that edge is going to be expressed um, in that small number of bets. Um, so in order to build really high conviction about something uh, uh, of that nature, about an investment of that nature, you, you really have to make a, a lot of discretionary decisions and think very strategically. Um, you know, so whenever you're, you're faced with a, a small population, and you have to make a really important bet, like a, a bet about what how you're going to take your career in a particular direction. You can be quantitatively informed, but ultimately you have to make a discretionary call. Um, in quantitative or, or perhaps more accurately, uh, systematic trading uh, or systematic investing, uh, you can't you have the luxury of making a large 
when you, when you have the luxury of making a large number of bets, um, you can conduct research uh, on uh, historical data that might give you some you know, greater confidence that you uh, that the the bet that you're making is a good one, and you can make a large enough number of them that you can uh, you can express that edge. So, you know, why did I get into this particular field as opposed to uh, discretionary investing? I think I always felt like um, when you're investing on a discretionary basis, it's going to be really hard to differentiate between whether you were really good or really lucky, exposed. And I always thought that in systematic investing, um, you could have like a greater confidence ex post that you were um, success, that if you were successful, it was because you uh, made a good decision and not just because you were lucky. And if you were unsuccessful ex post, it was because um, you, you made bad decisions and not just were, were unlucky. Um, I guess success is a matter of luck. To some extent, you can ask anybody that's failed and they'll tell you that success is a matter of luck. Um, but, but it's nice uh, it, using systematic techniques um, to be able to know or to have at least greater statistical confidence that, um, that if you were, if you were uh, successful, it was because of something, um, something that, uh, that uh, was a true, true, uh, true advantage and truly provable. Um, similarly, if you're engaged in a discretionary investment process, it becomes very hard to get better and to improve that process over time. Um, you, you can, you can you know, study and do research and try and become more informed, but it's hard to know if you really improved your process. But in systematic trading, because the process is something that is um, repeated many times and encoded, you can get a pretty good idea of whether a particular change to your investment process both would have worked better historically, would have backtested better, and also uh, works better in practice. And so that process, that that opportunity to be constantly improving, is sort of philosophically very compelling. So I guess those are the those are the two major reasons why um, pursuing this sort of uh, scientific endeavor is uh, very compelling. And I guess the last one that I would last reason I would mention is um, there's a certain thrill that you get from doing research and finding out some sort of relationship uh, or some sort of phenomenon in the world that very few other people know about. And um, that's a component of the systematic investing process and the systematic research process, which is really fun and, um, and some, sometimes a little different from the discretionary research process. That's an interesting point that you make about making a discovery that very few people know about. Um, and you made the parallel earlier to scientific research and how, um, just think how researchers, the satisfaction is in making a finding and, and spreading it to the world. But in something like being a part of a hedge fund, it's making a discovery and being very discreet about it. Um, and I think one thing that catches people's eyes about uh, hedge funds is just how how discreet and how um, still like not many people understand what they are. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to that point of the the secrecy 
of uh, asset management in, in your in your experience? So, I think that um, you're the uh, the underlying investment process that anybody pursues in this space is ultimately um, you know ultimately somewhat secretive because if you if you come up with a uh, if you find an anomaly in the market and you exploit that anomaly, um, you, know, you don't want your friendly competitors to exploit it as well. Otherwise, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. um, that said, most anomalies do go away um, and they go away pretty quickly. And so because the world is, you know, chock-a-block with a population of people who are trying to trying to identify these, these anomalies and, and exploit them, um, Definitionally, they they disappear really quickly, and so you have to constantly be doing new research to uh, to stay ahead of the competition. Um, and it's also satisfying that they go away. Um, it's obviously you know frustrating sometimes, but but in general, it's satisfying that they go away because what it means is that there are people in the world that are doing this research, and even if they're not publishing it, um, enough players uh, are aware of it that the market is getting constantly more and more and more efficient. And um, you know, the, the fundamental role that um, you know, we play in the market is trying to make the market more and more and more um, efficient and uh, ultimately, you know, hopefully reduce the cost of uh, capital uh, and make capital flows more, more efficient. Um, and uh, you know, there's a large um, body of uh, work in academic finance, which is very closely tied to the work that's done by uh, people um, in hedge funds uh, or in asset management firms, uh, in the sense that people move back and forth between academic finance and hedge funds. And also, there's a lot of dialogue that goes on between people in academic finance and hedge funds, because frankly, most of the research that gets done um, in a uh, non-academic setting results in no good tradable idea, but sometimes it results in ideas which ultimately make themselves make their way into academic research. Um, and that's sort of nifty too. Sometimes what you discover about the world by doing your research is something which is not monetizable within the con. In fact, most of the time it's not monetizable within the context of what we do, but it is, you know, often, you know, some contribution to, uh, you know, the sum total of, of knowledge about how, how markets behave and ultimately how people behave. Um, because, uh, you know, markets are in many ways, uh, a, um, uh, a measurable proxy for the behavior of very, very large populations of individuals. And part of the fun about uh, doing the research that we do is largely what we're trying to do is, uh, is identify the behavior of individuals and how it aggregates up um, in, in the market. Okay, so you um, touched on this a little bit in your previous response, but I just wanted to ask, um, what are your opinions on or responses to the bad rep uh, that people working in finance or as they often say, Wall Street uh, and hedge funds in particular have received from uh, public perception? And do you believe that their criticism, criticisms regarding like the social benefit of hedge funds are valid in any way? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, so I guess 
the first thing to note is, you know, asset management, people in finance, and especially people in the asset management side of finance, which is, you know, I'm differentiating different parts of finance. I mean, there are people in finance who are raising money for companies. There are people in finance who are doing venture capital. Um, you know, there are all sorts of different, different, different parts of finance. And there are people in hedge funds that are, you know, doing that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff too. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the, probably the, the biggest um, core criticism of Wall Street in general has, it has, is, is inextricably linked to you know, inequality and inherent um, and the distribution of, of wealth and the distribution of uh, income in society. And I think you know there are very valid concerns that many people share about uh, inequality of wealth and inequality of income, and uh, you know there's no question that um, financial, the finance industry, um, is uh, not always part of the solution and sometimes part of the problem. I mean, there's there's plenty of asset management, for example, that that is supporting um, or managing money for pension funds. There's plenty of uh, investment banking that is raising growth capital for companies which are creating new products and new employment. Um, and I think the sum total of contribution to society is uh, is positive, but you know, you have to wrestle with these fundamental these fundamental issues. So I'd like to zoom out a little bit. Um, you don't start as a hedge fund manager. Uh, there was there was a lot more that went on way before. What what got you into finance? So I was always in, I was always very interested in in uh, in in the field, um, and uh, even when I was a hunter. Um, you know, I was interested and, you know, took, I think the, the year I took econ at AP econ at Hunter was actually the first year it was ever offered. Um, I don't know if it's still offered. I assume it is. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a, there were a bunch of us that were very interested in, um, in, uh, how, you know, how American finance worked and how, how business worked along with other interests in, in, in the sciences and, and, uh, and related fields. Um, and so uh, I actually started off when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I was very involved in the New York Academy of Sciences. And when I was there uh, at the time, uh, I met a guy who was, happened to be the CEO of Citigroup at the time. And uh, I just walked up to him and said, you know, I'm really interested in this field. Could I have a summer internship? And he said, yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I got uh, a summer internship, which was the, you know, on a, on a trading floor at Citigroup um, and sort of got a feel for one part of the market. And then I did a bunch more summer, summer internships and got feels for other parts of the market. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately uh, uh, after some internships in college and other things found this particular space that, that, that I found particularly compelling, which married my interest in science and my interest in, um, in finance uh, and also uh, had me spending a lot of time with people that were a lot like my friends from Hunter, in the sense that um, you know was a it's a pretty geeky bunch here, and that was that was my crowd at Hunter. Um, and the funniest part of it is that um, my uh, my firm just moved into new offices, 
and the floor that I'm on and the building that I'm in is the same floor and building where I've had that first internship. Obviously a different company now. Wow. So pretty much full circle. Yeah. That's a good story. And so, so you, so you walked up to the, to the, did you know he was the CEO of Citigroup? I did. I did at the time, but I was, uh, I was, you know, he was, he was the chair of the board of New York Academy of Sciences. And I was the, I had a role in the junior Academy of the New York Academy of Sciences. And I was just like, you know, what, what could go wrong? You ask what's the worst that could happen. That's true. That's great. That's a great story. Yeah. It, it, it's an important lesson that, you know, if, if you don't ask, you don't get. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of great stories and attending Hunter, uh, I was wondering if you had uh, a favorite Hunter memory or any particularly funny or memorable stories from your time at Hunter that you would like to share. If not, that's perfectly fine as well. You know, there are definitely ones that I don't want to share publicly. Um, <laughs> but I will say, I will say um, it was, uh, you know, it was formative. Still, my best friends are my best friends from Hunter, uh, my best friends from when I was four years old. And um, I think that one thing that's really remarkable about Hunter is that the, um, the people that you meet at Hunter uh, pop up in all sorts of unusual and unexpected places. Um, and uh, also uh, because they have such a diverse set of interests, by keeping in touch with those people, they really keep you, keep you honest. I mean, it would be really, uh, it, would be, it would be sad if all my friends were just from finance, whereas instead they're, you know, computer science professors and um, literature professors and um, people that work for city government and um, you know that that's people that work at think tanks it's like it's a it's a wonderful people and people that are therapists and people that are doctors it's a it's a wonderful wonderful community that you know the great value in keeping in touch with I like that I think Eric and I are going to keep in touch too. We might even, uh, we might even start a hedge fund. We'll see. <laughs> so <laughs> I think this is going to be the last question. Cause I know, I know you have to, uh, to go. Um, but you, you spent a lot of time, um, in financing, which means you've spent a lot of time around money and, and we're at a point in our lives, me, Eric, and, and our peers who have just graduated high school, um, where we're off to college and, we have choices on, on what we're going to study, what we're going to pursue. And one factor in that uh, career choice is money, is how, how much money you earn. And so as someone who has a lot of experience being around money, um, can you talk about the importance of material wealth to you and how you think we should value material wealth as we go on in our lives? Wow, that's a deep question. Um, well, I'll tell you that like, I started out with no money <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get a lot of scholarship and financial aid to college. Um, and this was in the days before, um, before uh, need blind admissions. So I was, I was really, uh, I was really very fortunate in that regard. Wow. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, I definitely felt like, um, you know, I, I, I was really interested in finance, which was, great and convenient because I wanted to pay off my, my student loans as soon as possible. Um, but, 
you know, I think it's the I think it's really important to um, figure out what you're really interested in doing and what what not just what you're good at, but what you love doing as a lot, you know, if you can, if you can afford to do that. Um, and usually, you know, you'll, if you're really great at it, the enough material satisfaction will come that, you know, you'll want to keep doing it for a long, long time. I mean, I definitely have friends, um, a limited number of friends that went into finance and then just realized it wasn't for them and went off to do something else. I also have friends that went into finance only for the money and, you know, because they basically wanted a, a high paying job out of school and all of those people are not doing it anymore. So, you know, the number of people that go, go to college and then um, go into uh, investment banking or consulting because they, you know, want to make, you know, a high starting salary, like that's a large population. And um, I think that's fine if you need the money to pay off your loans or, or, or you know, support your family. Um, but if you can, but if it's not ultimately something that you love, um, you know, you're not gonna be doing it for very long and it could be like a, a lot of wasted time. Um, one, one thing that I, definitely learned especially when I was in college is um you know I did things in the summer that were um or tried to do things in the summer that were very closely related to what I thought I wanted to do after college and I was so glad I did because I realized that there were some parts of finance that like I thought I really wanted to do but after doing a summer job in that area, I found that I hated it and it definitely was not what I wanted to do. And so to the extent that you can afford to spend even just a few days shadowing somebody or doing an internship um, or doing a summer job in an area that you think you're passionate about, um, it's hugely important to do that early on because most people find when they do a couple of those, that the thing that they thought they always wanted to do is not the thing that they wanted to do. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. I, I definitely um, second the idea that college is like a time for exploration. Um, I know that we are running short on time, but uh, do you think I'd be able to ask you just one follow-up question? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so I don't know if this is like a rude question but like obviously you are very um passionate about your job and you made it very clear that like you see it as a science and you get that uh, you talk about that exhilarating feeling you get um when you make that discovery but i'm wondering from your experience you've talked about some people just getting into finance for the money like do you think a large percent of people that are working in finance are working uh purely for the money or is it something that uh people are truly passionate about and love um, yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to say. I, I'm, I tend to give, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I think people at the top of their field, the people who are really at the top of their field are definitely in it because it's something they love. In other words, you know, compensation might be a way to keep score. There are other ways to keep score or to measure their, their, um, their success. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think really the people that are at the top of their field are always um, people who love the job, lo- love the work and are passionate about the work. Um, they might be passionate about it because it's a game that they can win as opposed to, uh, as opposed to because they, because of the, they feel like the, the work that they're doing has intrinsic value. Um, they might be, they might be passionate about it because it's, you know, intellect, incredibly intellectually stimulating. And they might be passionate about it because they love the people that they work with, but all the people I've ever met who are at the top of their field, um, whether it's in law or finance or academia, um, or, you know, a number of other medicine, a number of other domains, people wake up every morning and they really want to go to work and do the thing. It's not for the, uh, it's not for the money or the fame or the acclaim. Got you. All right. Um, so, uh, unfortunately that is all the time that we have for today, but thank you so much, Mr. Grant, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on today and share with us your knowledge and experience. Uh, I certainly learned a lot um, about the field and about just general life advice. And I'm sure Adam could say the same. And hopefully this can help listeners better understand what it's like working in finance and if this is something that's truly for them. Um, So on the next episode, we plan to talk to a heart surgeon who also uh, treated COVID patients during the peak of the pandemic in New York City. Uh, So stay tuned.